Welcome to Off Good Ireland Podcast. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Joel Davis. Joel is an Australian nationalist and political commentator. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. It really makes all the difference. And if you'd like to support us, you can buy a coffee at the link below or you can buy one of our promotional t-shirts. Thanks a million, guys. Off Good Ireland is delighted to welcome Joel Davis. Joel is an Australian nationalist, activist and political commentator, strategist. His content is mostly found on YouTube, Telegram, Odyssey and Twitter. Joel is joining us here at Off Good Ireland to discuss our issues affecting both our countries, um, our wins and also exploring our failings with hopes of inspiring our members to ignite the fire in our bellies, to stand united for our culture, our identity and our people. Welcome to Off Good Ireland, Joel. Delighted to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks a million for joining us. Um, I suppose we'll just kick it off. I have some questions here. How do you? How would you define nationalism, and what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, a nation etymologically, the word nation, um, you know, if we go all the way back to the Latin. It basically means a people of shared ancestry. Uh, Another classical definitions. If we go back to ancient Greece and how they conceived of the Greek nation, obviously they had distinct, uh, you know, political orders, city-states. So you had the Spartans and the Athenians and so on, but they were all the Greek nation. And they became very conscious of this when they were fighting the Persians. Uh, and they unified on the basis that they had shared ancestry, but also that they had a shared language and a shared uh, culture and religious uh, beliefs. So obviously these kind of cultural, linguistic and religious dimensions are very important to national identity, but fundamentally it is a people of shared ancestry. The, uh, the Latin term natio, which is also the root of the word uh, in English natal or natalism or, um, you know, it basically means of birth or of shared birth. So that's what a nation is. Uh, today a nation has come to be redefined uh, in the English language to mean somehow just uh, people who all get pieces of paper given to them by a specific government uh, where they get demarcated as citizens. But this doesn't really make any sense or comport with the historical definition of the term. And we see this because if we go to like a, a language like Chinese, the term Minzu, now I might be mispronouncing it because I don't speak Mandarin, but the term, uh, the term Minzu in uh, in Mandarin means both race and nation. They don't have a separate word for race and nation. And we see this in like 19th century documents where uh, there'll be references to the British race, the German race, and so on. You know, people will say that instead of saying the British nation or the the German nation. Um, now, obviously, British is not really a nation. It's there's four nations that make it up. But, uh, you know, you get the idea. Um, that these these terms were often used in an interchangeable way until very recently. And so I hold to that classical definition because I think the way that uh, the term nation has been disfigured in contemporary discourse is, you know, basically a product of the anti-white agenda the um, and the anti-nationalist agenda, the globalist agenda, that uh, have to do violence to what these terms mean because it's uh, politically expedient for their ends. So... To me, as an Australian nationalist, I mean, the Australian people are predominantly an Anglo-Celtic people. There's an Anglo-Celtic founding stock. Uh, you know, pretty much all immigration to Australia prior to federation 
was almost entirely from the British Isles. Uh, you might be offended by me using the term British Isles, but obviously Ireland is included in that. Um, and, you know, we had some, you know, a little bit of Germans and things like that. But generally speaking, that's what it was. And the people that were Germans or Scandinavians or whatever that did come here, they uh, assimilated into the Anglo-Celtic stock, both through intermarriage and, um, you know, through cultural identity. There's no German-Australian uh, cultural identity that doesn't exist, even though there's plenty of Australians that have German ancestry. They just became part of that kind of white Australian uh, ethnic stock. And as I said, they all intermarried and so on. Um, and so to me, that's the Australian nation and other European, uh, other Europeans that have immigrated here uh, since Federation uh, throughout the uh, 20th century and even contemporary uh, in a kind of contemporaneous way, um, they have the capacity to kind of marry in and join the Australian nation, assimilate uh, because they, as Europeans, are all our uh, racial cousins. Um, but I don't consider them to be truly Australian um, unless they actually have fully integrated. So if someone moves out here, even from England, um, but they grew up in England until they were you know, 20 years old, they never really be Australian. To be Australian, I think you kind of have to be born here or at least grow up here from a very young age where you have the accent and the mannerisms and the attitude. Um, and ideally, you, you kind of really need to have at least one parent who is an Australian um, for you to be truly Australian. Uh, so, you know, to me, that's, that's how it works because, you know, just being a white person in Australia or just a person in Australia is just saying now they have a Chinese guy or an Indian guy who grew up in Australia and therefore he's an Australian. He's not an Australian. He's not part of my nation. And I know this because when there's discourse in Australia around Aboriginal rights, and the Aboriginal nation all of a sudden exists. So if we've been living in this same landmass under the same government for, you know, centuries, um, then how come if race has nothing to do with nation, if ancestry has nothing to do with nation, how do they still have a separate identity? How do they still exist as a distinct people with a distinct political uh, interests and with a distinct culture and so on, if what I'm saying is false? Uh, multiculturalism only seems to exist. Uh, this kind of multicultural like, notion of the Australian nation, this civic nationalism, it only seems to exist when we're talking about the uh, successor of white Australia. But when we're talking about Aboriginal Australia, all of a sudden, even the most far leftist individual becomes a rabid ethno-nationalist, uh, which is obviously incoherent. We saw this recently last weekend, um, or the weekend before last, I should say, uh, at an immigration rally, there was an anti-immigration rally in Melbourne, and I talked to some of the boys who were at the protest. And what happened was this, that there's obviously these leftist, anti-fed uh, counter-protesters, and there was an Aboriginal guy in the counter-protest who was yelling at them, go back to Britain. And uh, they said, you know, oh, so you want all the, you know, you want your land back, basically. You're an Aboriginal, you, you, you claim sovereignty over Australia. We're here protesting against them bringing in more immigrants. So you want Indians to come in and Chinese people to come in, but you want the British to go back. That's not very, it's not a very coherent position. You're just anti-white. You're not actually like some Aboriginal revanchist nationalist or something. So yeah, the, the term nation seems to be kind of understood in a very coherent way when we're talking about non-white groups and only when we're talking about white nations, all of a sudden that goes out the window. So, um, so yeah, I'm probably kind of, 
elaborate a bit more than the kind of scope of your question there. But uh, you know, that's my that's my nationalism. Nationalism is the assertion of an ethnic group uh, having uh, a, necess- a necessity for their own political representation. Um, you know, you can uh, nationalism is that kind of tendency of politicizing an ethnic group. Um, so, you know, I don't feel as a white Australian or an Anglo-Celtic Australian that I really have political representation at this point because, you know, any other ethnic group can have their own specific ethnic political style and their own organizations and so on, and they can participate in multiculturalism. But if my group tries to do it, they call you a Nazi, they call you, um, they vilify you as a racist and, no one in polite society is allowed to acknowledge you or associate with you. Uh, otherwise, they get called a Nazi and a racist and so on, which is apparently the most terrible thing anyone can be. So uh, that's why I'm an Australian nationalist, because I'm not satisfied with that situation. Uh, it's also why I'm concerned about the nationalism of all the other kind of uh, white nations around the world and how they're under attack. Um, and... You know, it's just, again, it's just kind of pointing out that kind of double standard where nationalism is perfectly uh, fine and valid uh, according to the kind of uh, contemporary elite, as long as non-whites are practicing it, uh, which is just, you know, just fundamentally ridiculous and unfair. So I hope that kind of uh, addresses the question. Yeah, Joel, you, re- you, covered, you covered it all there. Um, I'd agree with a lot of what you, were, what you said. Um, I, most of what you said, everything basically what you said, we're on the same page there. And this this whole thing of labeling people Nazis and all this kind of stuff, it's it's wearing thin here in Ireland. Um, there's about fifteen or twenty news reports over the last few days calling grandmothers and grannies far right and anyone who opposes the the regime. Um, let me see here. I've seen something lately in Australia. They were clamping down on some um, nationalist organisations like youth groups and stuff like that. I don't know if you're following along with that um how do you see nationalism playing a role in in australia's political and cultural landscape do you think that you'll be able to break through or is there any prospects on the horizon yeah well australia has a very i think unique political expression of nationalism because it seems like the only way that nationalists are able to make an imprint uh an impact on the national conversation in recent years is by being out and out national socialists the media if you throw roman salutes and heil hitler the media will report on you and so there is a certain group of people uh who do that and have been very effective at um getting news articles written about them constantly uh and creating a kind of interesting dynamic in the political culture here whereas uh, a more kind of conventional nationalism uh Ever since Blair's project, when 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 Blair Cottrell was running the uh, United Patriots Front, and before that he was involved with Reclaim Australia, and so on, this is going back five years or so plus. Um, you know, they were they were a very impactful force. They were putting out videos online, getting millions of views. They were having rallies in even in not even in the major cities. They'd go to like a smaller town like Bendigo, and they would get thousands of people show up to their rallies. And they had more of this uh, anti-Islam kind of slant, but then Blair's speeches at the actual rallies and his video content would almost 
almost barely ever actually address Islam and would just be a more general kind of nationalist message. And, you know, he, he was a very effective figure. He was getting onto even uh, Sky News, which is like our version of, I guess, the equivalent in the United States would be Fox News. I don't know what the equivalent would be in Ireland, but as a kind of, you know, center-right uh, cable news um, programming. He was going on there. He was advocating for to change Australia's uh, immigration policy to uh, basically privilege white South African migrants, that we would take them first and foremost before we took anyone else for obvious reasons. And, you know, that was actually driving the news cycle and it was actually being taken seriously as an idea by the immigration minister at the time and so on. And uh, that was a very different political landscape to how things are today where Australia has gone so far to the left than even where it was five years ago um, after kind of legalizing gay marriage. They've just gone incredibly hardcore on the uh, transgender thing. Um, there's been a lot of drag queen story hours that we've been protesting here. And actually, we've been quite successful in recent months in getting quite a lot of them shut down. Uh, but they're pushing that very hard. They had a very elaborate pride week here a few months ago where they had you know, the big Mardi Gras marches through the cities. And even the prime minister was marching in Mardi Gras, which was a first. Uh, and we're a country that legalized gay marriage literally five years ago, and it's gone from that to this in such a short period of time. And they're pushing it through the schools, and you know that's really becoming a massive issue. And in addition to that, during COVID, um, we had no immigration, basically. The borders were shut for two years. And there was an election last year, and both major parties – they ran on the platform that they were going to bring back immigration at a far lower level than what it was prior to the pandemic. And that was very popular. People don't like immigration. They, the average person understands that it drives up the cost of housing and the cost of living. It increases the traffic they have to deal with every day getting to work. If you live in a major city, it depresses wages and so on. Maybe they don't understand it in a technical sense, but they at least feel that, which is why immigration is massively unpopular as well as the fact that it's, it displaces people uh, culturally and ethnically in their own communities. Um, and and it was massively unpopular. They both said that they wouldn't bring it back. And it was, so it was barely an issue that was debated. Uh, of course, both major parties, uh, they are both funded in a campaign capacity by massive finance lobbies, business lobby groups, property lobby groups, and so on that all have a vested interest in bringing in as much immigrants as possible because they have a vested interest in keeping wages down and the cost of housing going up and so on, which is obviously contrary to the average person's economic interest at the very least. Anyway, so they just basically lied. Uh, after, the, uh, after the election was over, they opened the floodgates with the largest wave of immigration in Australian history. They've brought in something like 400,000 people in the last year, which is like almost double the previous record uh, of an immigration intake. And the media was barely talking about it. The right-wing party that moved into opposition after the election, they were criticizing it late last year, the government, for not taking enough immigrants quickly enough because we have this huge skill shortage and so on. I mean, the discourse was terrible. But this year, as the housing crisis is beginning to tighten, as some of these uh, nationalist activists are creating headlines week in, week out, um, and you know, there's a kind of, kind of more of a kind of popular backlash uh, against the government's immigration policy. Now that's kind of dominating the news cycle in recent weeks. 
the conservative opposition has you know started attacking the government overtaking in too many migrants and causing the housing crisis now i don't take this as an indication that they're really seriously changing their policies i just see it as political opportunism but it it shows that the issue of immigration is now moved front and center within australian political discourse again and if you look at the polls the polls show that a recent poll showed that 70 percent of australians want immigration drastically reduced or cut to zero uh and that something like 68 percent of people I could be wrong about that, but it's 60-something percent of people um, agree with the statement that Australia already has enough people and doesn't need more people. Um, and the amount of people that support the immigration policy of the government was this very small minority of respondents. So it's massively unpopular uh, with the people. And I think this is going to be the animating issue of this year. Uh, and so that's really bringing nationalism back into the conversation, as well as the fact that they're trying to do this voice referendum, which is a referendum basically to give aboriginals um and an aboriginal advisory body their own kind of uh, special role in the government constitutionally where they can advise not only the parliament but any aspect of the executive government directly um and they're saying it's just an advisory body it's nothing to worry about the government if it doesn't agree with any of their recommendations they can choose to ignore them or or contradict them but the question then becomes well why are they trying to put this into the constitution you have judicial activism where something will go into the constitution with ambiguous wording or sometimes no uh, actual direct wording and these uh, you know left-wing activist judges will interpret all of these wild and, and, and crazy things into the constitution and it's similar to what you get in america where like the supreme court has found that gay marriage is in the constitution somehow and so is the right to have an abortion obviously that was overturned recently but uh you know these kinds of judgments and in New Zealand, they have something similar for the Maori people to the, what they call the Waitangi Tribunal, which is the Maori representative to to kind of oversee the treaty between uh, the Maori and the British Crown. And judicial activism has caused their role to be increasingly um, reinterpreted and reinterpreted so that they basically, their advice has to be listened to in many respects, according to court order, and they have oversight over all kinds of aspects of the New Zealand government, even things like foreign policy, things that seemingly have no direct relevance to like quote unquote Maori uh, issues. So this is deeply concerning and that's going to go to a referendum later this year, at least it's supposed to. And this is also creating a very kind of polarizing racial dynamic in the media where they're basically trying to shove white guilt down everyone's throat and force through this referendum, uh, which is a kind of a, uh, you know, a kind of repudiation, basically, of the legitimacy of Australia's founding. So it's actually a, a I'm, I'm noticing nationalist narratives and the energy around our talking points really increase. Uh, but other than the national socialist activists, we're not that well organized. So that's really the challenge for us is to develop uh, an organizational structure that can that can make the most of it. I would love to see in Australia later this year, the kinds of uh, anti-immigration protests that you guys had in Ireland at the end of last year. And I think that's something that's quite, quite feasible that it could happen. And hopefully that can be the basis for the rebirth of a more mainstream Australian nationalist movement again um, that can provide a voice to the people around these kinds of issues where the conventional political mainstream, uh, obviously the left, but also the conservatives are just letting everyone down. Um, so, so yeah, that's basically where we're at.
Good stuff. Um, what, what kind of regions are your, your migrants coming from? Because a lot of Irish people will point to Australia and say, you know, we would like robust, you know, border controls similar to what Australia has, because obviously people are looking at, you know, the border force, Australia and all this, you see people's bags getting checked and all that. And then a lot of people do, a lot of Irish people obviously go to Australia. So, you know, there's a process there and it um, can be can be quite tough and you have to have certain funds, I think, in your account and all sorts of things, requirements to get in, even just on a temporary visa. So what's the situation there now around that? Like on, on what regions are the people coming from? Yeah, so the number one region where they're coming from now is India. So we don't really get illegal immigration because it is correct. We 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 put a stop to that. And it's one of the few things the government is any good at is shutting that down. So we don't have this kind of illegal migrant crisis like they had in Ireland or like they had in, in Great Britain. Um, but the immigrants that they're bringing in are just economic migrants. They're from India or they're from China. It's usually from somewhere in Asia, but those are the two big places that they come from. Um, so, yeah, we do still get a decent amount of immigrants from Britain and Ireland. And I obviously don't really have a problem with that at all. But, um, you know, it, they're getting dwarfed by the waves, particularly Indians. Like the, I mean, just over the last 10 years, if you were in Sydney or Melbourne, which are obviously our two major cities, almost half of our entire population live in those two cities. And the transformation of just how many Indians there are is just crazy. Like when I was a kid, I'm 28. When I was a kid, I barely even knew any Indians. I don't think I ever met one until, I don't know, maybe I was 11 or 12 years old. And now they're just everywhere. Um, and when you go into the inner part of the major cities, like the CBD in either Sydney or Melbourne, there's just Chinese people or other kinds of Asians, like East Asians, just everywhere as well. And it didn't used to be like that when I was a kid. So those are predominantly where they're coming from because they come, usually they come through student visa programs. So they'll, and, and the whole, uh, the, the way in which the university system kind of funds itself is through bringing in foreign uh, migrant students because they can charge them four times what they are capped at charging Australian students because the government caps how much universities can charge Australian citizens for their education for obvious reasons. But then that just creates this perverse incentive where universities want to go and bring in as many foreign migrants into the universities because they pay four times the fees. And so, and then when you're an Indian or a Chinese person, you want to ticket into Australia. It's really difficult unless you go through the kind of student uh, migration scheme uh, and they come in and they do some BS degree that they don't care about and just do the bare minimum to kind of tick it over. Uh, but under the kind of student visa, they're able to then work with legally or legally. There's some certain kind of stipulations, but, and so they come in basically as workers, quote unquote students, but they, they're really coming in as workers and certain industries like the uh, aged care industry and, and uh, some other industries are just packed with these so-called student migrant workers. And then they have a pathway to permanent residency that kind of gets initiated by that process. Maybe they stay for, you know, three to five years under that and then they can progress on to a more permanent uh, visa arrangement. So it's usually that as the most common pathway, although, um, you know, some come in directly under certain kind of subclasses of skilled migrant uh, visa classes as well. So there's a significant portion of that too. So Australia, that's the thing. Australia, we don't have a massive amount of immigrant crime. Um, 
we do have a bit because we do take some asylum seekers from Africa. So we've got like Sudanese and stuff like that. Or we take immigrants that come in that are from the Pacific Islands quite a lot, like Tongans and Fijians, uh, Samoans. Usually they come through New Zealand because it's very easy for them to move to New Zealand because of agreements New Zealand has with a lot of these Pacific Island nations. And then once you become a New Zealand citizen, you're entitled to basically live in Australia and have the full rights of an Australian citizen, more or less. And so there's this kind of pipeline where they kind of go through New Zealand into Australia. They do commit a lot of crime. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, and we did take some refugees from wars in the Middle East, like Iraqis and Afghans and stuff. But generally speaking, that's the minority. The majority of the immigrants are these kinds of uh, Indians and Asians and so on. And so that's why the kind of immigration debate is a bit different here because we aren't really dealing with these – it's not like in America where you've got all these like Mexican gangs and all these illegals pouring over the border and that type of thing. Or in the, in uh, Europe where it's just like all these Islamic immigrants. Um, uh, in Australia, it's not we don't quite have those dynamics. They're more law, We have more law-abiding immigrants – um, at least like, you know, they're not violent criminals. They might not abide by the law, but in more kind of like, you know, dodging taxes and that kind of thing. Um, so the immigration debate here is less about the more direct social consequences of like crime and illegal migration. And it's more these indirect things like wage suppression and housing crisis, uh, in addition to the more fundamental kind of cultural and racial dimension, but obviously that's well, kind of a taboo thing to address. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I want to ask you about because I think this, well, I, from, from some of the things that I've been following, the, the Aboriginal uh, question there that you were talking about and this whole thing of having guilt and all of that kind of stuff, can you give us a bit of a rundown on, like, I presume they're, are they going for some kind of protected status for them or they already have some kind of protected status and I suppose some people will say that it's kind of a similar situation maybe in, in, in the US where, you know, they say, oh, these people have been, you know, everything's been taken from them. They're in ghettos. They're all, you know, there's a lot of social issues within that community. Um, can you give us a rundown on some of that stuff around the Aborigines? Because the, I, I, you can go into IQ levels and all kinds of stuff and not to disparage them. And I don't think they should be, you know, I don't know that we can talk about some solutions to it. But um, can you talk a bit about the Aborigine thing? Yeah, well, I mean, for people who don't, who've never had any experience with Australia, I mean, the average IQ of Aboriginals is about 62. So to put that in perspective, if a white person gets an IQ score below 70, that person is mentally challenged or in the old parlance, mentally retarded. Um, so we're talking about a, a race of people, the majority of which, like the pure bloods at the very least, are, you know, mentally retarded, basically. Um and, uh, you know, in addition to that, you know, obviously there's a strong grievance um, that they have, but they also have a, a very messed up culture, let's say, like the, the rates of child abuse in their communities is just insane, particularly child sexual abuse. It's like, it's almost ridiculous. Um, it, it almost feels like it isn't real. You know, there's all these reports of, you know, social workers going into these Aboriginal communities and the whole family have the same STD. And even the kids that are like four or five years old. So, and, and the kids are out roaming in these kind of uh, these towns that have a big Aboriginal population. The kids as young as eight, nine, ten are out roaming the streets all night, you know, engaging in petty crime, breaking into people's houses, breaking into people's cars. I mean, it's just a disaster. 
I mean, there's no there's no real uh, way to sugarcoat it. Um, and so, yeah, any anyone who has to live with these people understands that, like, if you look at all the data, like their crime rates are just insane on every dimension compared to all the other groups. Um, other than drug dealing, they don't do too much drug dealing because they just simply don't even have the agency to be good drug dealers. But all the other kinds of dimensions of crime, they just outrank everyone else in Australia by incredible margins. So, you know, but then if you have too many Aboriginals in custody or we have too many Aboriginal kids being taken off their parents by child protection because they're getting literally raped, um, this is racist, apparently. Um, so, you know, the system is basically hamstrung by accusations of racism to actually you know manage these communities um and uh so yeah it's a disaster basically but you know obviously the kind of grievance aspect of the culture you get this other dynamic in australia where people will have you know 15 percent aboriginal ancestry or less and the, or maybe they don't even have aboriginal ancestry and they just claim that they do because they don't, we don't actually have like we don't you know do dna tests to determine officially whether you're Aboriginal or anything, because that would be racist. So, you know, a lot of people just identify as Aboriginal that aren't even Aboriginal, but they're just leftists who want to be part of it. Um, or they have a very small amount of Aboriginal ancestry and they look white, but they call themselves Aboriginal and they go on television and they become professional Aboriginal activists and they get all these cushy roles at the universities and they form the Aboriginal lobby. The Aboriginal lobby does have some like proper Aboriginals in it too, obviously, who actually look the part, but you know, a lot of them are like half caste or or less. And you know, the Aboriginal lobby is this very has become this incredibly powerful, influential force in Australian politics um, already, even without this voice thing that they're proposing. Um, and you know, it's a very sensitive issue. Like, if you're not seen to be reverent about Aboriginal sovereignty and Aboriginal culture and so on, you're considered a racist now. Uh, every sporting event, they've got to have some Aboriginal go out onto the field and do this thing where they welcome everyone to the country. Maybe they do a little dance where they bang sticks together or whatever before the football starts. Um, it's become this kind of cultural institution uh, of great magnitude in our country, and th this is a pretty recent change as i said when i was a kid none of that would happen um aboriginals were largely an afterthought in my life through my childhood because they were largely an afterthought in in general in in, in wider society and that's not the case anymore whatsoever but this aboriginal voice is pernicious because you know it comes with a, a an agenda basically if you look at the architects of the voice and ultimately what they want they want a treaty their whole mantra is that we never signed a treaty with the aboriginals like the crown signed a treaty with the maoris in new zealand but we never signed a treaty with the aboriginals here they never ceded sovereignty to us like the maoris ceded sovereignty to the crown and so we need to negotiate a treaty with them and the stipulations of what they want in the treaty is they want a tax on australia's entire gdp they want all these land rights claims which they already have to a large extent through the courts obtained there's something like 80% of Australia's territory is currently subject to land rights claims that are, that are in the courts. And I can't remember the exact quantity of them, which have been approved, but it's incredible. It's like over a third of Australia's territory is demarcated as quote unquote Aboriginal land at this point. So they basically want taxes on everything on farming, on, on mining, on, on everything. They want, 
They want land taxes in general. They want a tax on Australia's entire GDP. They just basically just want to grift off the entire Australian economy. The mantra they have is that Australia, we got a whole country for free. We haven't even, even begun to pay for it yet. We need to pay the rent, even though obviously my ancestors, white Australians, built this country from nothing. The Aboriginals contributed literally zero of, of substance to anything that was constructed here. They were some of the most primitive people. They make um, sub-Saharan Africans look like geniuses by comparison. So, you know, it's just a ridiculous position that we're in where we can't talk about the reality of race to explain all these differences. So all Aboriginal disadvantage has to be explained by, you know, white supremacy and, and evil white people and racism. And uh, we have we owe them the whole country now. Um, and that's what they say. We have to feel like whenever I make the claim that a, a nativist claim against, you know, I don't want immigrants coming into my country. Australia was built by my people. My pe this is my country. I get told that you know I'm a, I'm a invader. I'm actually British. I don't belong here. I should leave and go back where I came from or where my ancestors are from. And that this is an Aboriginal country, and therefore we need to bring in three million Indians um, or something because that's that makes sense somehow uh but yeah so that's that's the basic play but i think the voice referendum i don't think it's going to be all that six i don't think it's going to be successful in the current formulation because when they initially kind of marketed it at the end of last year they were kind of describing it as this kind of oh it's just going to be this vague advisory body it won't have any power and it's just about giving aboriginals some formal representation to um represent their interests in the public conversation but as the issue has gathered momentum and people are kind of starting to critically think about this, you know, why are they trying to impose this? Why does it need to be a constitution? Why can't they just set up an Aboriginal advisory body with a statute or just organize one independently? Why does it need to be constitutional? Every time they do a poll, the no vote goes up and it's almost at parity. Whereas like when they were doing polls last year, it was like the yes vote was 70, 30 up on the no vote or something. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting because if uh, if we can defeat the referendum, um, that will show that there's still some vitality left in Australia, that it hasn't become so demoralized that we're just going to surrender our country and our resources um, out of white guilt. But also they'll call the country racist and so on. And it will just create a very interesting, I think, uh, political discourse that really brings uh, to heed like existential questions uh, around the legitimacy of Australia's founding and so on and what Australia actually is in, in the sense of its identity. But, um, but yeah, Aboriginals are largely used as a kind of, they're used as a kind of structural uh, weapon against white Australia because uh, there's massive involvement all throughout the history of Aboriginal kind of rights activism and organization. Uh, whether you're talking about the Mabo decision in the early nineties to overturn uh, the Declaration of Terra Nullis, which was the uh, determination by the British that Australia belonged to no one so they could claim sovereignty um, and giving opening up all these Aboriginal land rights claims like I was describing to you, uh, where they'll make up some story about how their ancestors have a sacred space in the middle of this uranium mine and so therefore they need 20% of the profits um, and, and this kind of thing. Also, uh, yeah, Jews were very heavily involved in this voice campaign. The number one architect of uh, the voice is a guy called Mark Liebler, who's Australia's most prominent Zionist activist. 
uh, one of the most powerful Zionists or one of the most powerful political brokers, power brokers in the entire country, Australia's most powerful Zionist activist. For some reason, he thinks that settler colonialism is totally fine in Israel. The Palestinians don't need a voice in Israeli parliament, but in Australia, the Aboriginals must be uh, elevated and and uh, white Australia must be totally ripped up and uh, destroyed because of how racist and evil it was to set up a country on someone else's land. So it's kind of a, quite an interesting uh, hypocrisy, but but that's kind of the reality uh, where you know, left, left-wing elements, anti-white elements, they use the Aboriginal thing as just a vehicle for all of their agenda as, as a kind of, as I said, as a weapon against white Australia and against uh, the Australian right or Australian nationalism. Yeah, Joel, just to come back on that there, I was in a Twitter space yesterday and um, I was just listening in and it was exactly like what we're talking about here about white, uh, white, are white people responsible for all the world's problems or something crazy like that? And I jumped in and they were talking about the, this Aboriginal issue and the guy who was running the space, like he's completely basically saying that, you know, white people went over and stole the land from the Aborigines. Basically what you're saying um, is the, the trope. But, and he's trying to say that they had a nation and that before that. But really, truly, they're, they're hunter-gatherers and they were, they were a loose, you know, link of tribes that were there What's your answer to people who say that? Like, what's your rebuttal to people who say, you know, you took the land from the Aborigines or whatever else? And then also, could you answer this? I, I get the idea, and this is something Jordan Peters and other people have spoken about. Like, they, 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 there is a problem there with the IQ. Um, they need to be looked after in such a way. Like, how how do you integrate them into into the society then? And, and the, that's the second question. Yeah, well, I mean, the idea, I mean, there's more Aboriginals in Australia today than there was... Uh, when the white man first arrived and they're only like 2% of the population. So, you know, Australia's got 25 million people. There's not a lot of them, uh, to put it lightly. You know, there's less than a million of them. So the idea that, you know, this group of, uh, you know, as you said, hunter-gatherers that are just kind of wandering around they don't make settlements. They don't do anything. They don't cultivate the land. They don't do agriculture. They don't build anything. They basically just roam around throwing sticks at stuff. And, you know, that's, that's basically the extent of their technological capability. The idea that they have sovereignty over the entire continent of Australia, therefore is just ridiculous to me. It's there's, there's no civilization there. There's no unification there. As you mentioned, they had different languages. They're these different disparate tribes. Um, they were living like savages. They didn't have a concept of property or a concept of nationhood or a concept of the state or any of these things, law, any of these things, which are kind of requirements for having a sovereign territory. Um, now, what's the solution? I mean, I think the solution has to be, I, I don't think it works trying to integrate them into our society. They um, are incapable of civilization generally, and the ones who are kind of capable of living in a civilized manner are just like incredibly resentful and destructive elements in our society. And so I think the solution is for to kind of give them, you know, reserves, give them certain parts of Australia that can be their areas where they can practice whatever culture and society they want to. We won't impose our values on them, um, you know, and, and try and, you know, turn them into civilized people like us. We tried that. It didn't work. They just resent us for it. So they can go and live in their own areas uh, and we'll leave them alone. 
if they leave us alone and they can just do their own thing. I think that's really the only uh, solution uh, that's really available for us on the Aboriginal question. Uh, but giving them back the whole country, it doesn't make any sense. We built it. They didn't. It's our blood, sweat, tears, uh, you know, ingenuity uh, and work, you know, that created Australia, that turned it into the modern, um, you know, it's one of the most advanced countries in the world. That It's incredible quality of life, incredible uh, modern uh, civilization that we brought here. Obviously, uh, that's ours. Like we made it. And they benefit from it. I mean, they're getting access to all of these technologies and to all of these advancements and so on in medicine and all, all the rest of it because of that. And if we didn't take it, somebody else would have. Eventually, the Japanese would have got down here or the Chinese or whoever, and they would have set up shop and they wouldn't have been so kind to the Aboriginals as we were because they wouldn't have had the kind of whole Christian morality thing going on can that I we did. You, can I give you a pushback, Joel? Because I'll just repeat with this idiot for want of a better word said in the twitter space yesterday right this is what he said he said that australian economy is based on the extraction of uh, iron ore and different resources and that that should be taxed and reparations should be given to the aborigines this is what the, the spaces host was saying yesterday what's your what's your answer yeah. to that like, well, what the, what happens well the aborigines the don't yeah, I mean, we've already given them a lot. I mean, if we want to sit down and get the calculator out and think about the wealth transfer from us to them, I mean, they're not a productive people and they get incredible handouts. Like if you're an Aboriginal, even if you're a fake Aboriginal in Australia, um, you get incredible benefits uh, in terms of just like literal, just free money, as well as incredibly cheap, high quality housing that's all subsidized and paid for by the government. And you also you have your free money to pay whatever the remaining is. Um, there's all these quotas and so on to get you into universities and, uh, you know, you know, various corporations and so on. Um, they're given so much, uh, and they've given us nothing really in return. Talk about the iron ore in the desert. There weren't any of them in the desert because the desert wasn't habitable. Only we figured out how to like get ourselves out there and survive and dig holes into the ground and find the iron ore in the first place. They never would have even got there. Whenever even went there in the first place, uh, yeah, to yeah, the, the areas where you have these iron ore deposits. You're taking their iron. That's what he was saying. You're taking their iron ore, and it, and the rebuttal was that they did that, that those people didn't never had the technology, nor never will to extract it. But I just thought these are the insane ideas that that the left or that you know people virtue signalers mm. kind of have in their head. Yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous, and you know, when it comes to a full accounting we have to look at it from both directions like i talk about this as well in the american in, when the americans talk about reparations for blacks it's like well they've already paid it if you look at all the benefits that african americans have extracted from the system and also all the costs that they've imposed through their crime rate and so on the americans have, uh, white americans already paid reparations and then some to black americans uh because of all you know when you when you do a full accounting of the real exchange but then we have a do a one-sided accounting it's like uh the whole continent somehow belonged to these people that were roaming around in these small sections in australia in in the desert doing nothing of any uh great value we come in build an advanced civilization and now they want a cut of what we built it's just uh yeah it's just ridiculous um so 
so yeah, and as I said, if we didn't come and take over the Chinese or the Japanese would, they don't believe that all men and women are you know made in the image of God. Uh, they probably just would have genocided them. Um, and and the and the idea like that we genocided them is also ridiculous because if we wanted to, we could have. I mean, even today, if all white Australians all just got this like genocidal anti-Aboriginal ideology in their in their minds or something. And we wanted to, we could actually kill them all because we would have the means and the capacity. They would be defenseless. The only, um, the reality is, is that we didn't come in and, and just, you know, just start like, just like mass eradicating them from Australia. Otherwise, there wouldn't be more of them here now than there was when we showed up. And also they talk about the stolen generations and about how racist it was that we took their kids off them and, you know, tried to raise them ourselves and, and make them Christians and give them an education. The reason why we took the kids off them was because they were raping them. It's like, no one ever talks about that, but uh, that's what we had the Christian charity to be concerned about these poor Aboriginal kids. We were actually concerned about their welfare. It was the opposite of racism, really. Um, you know, if we were racist, we would have just said, who cares? Like, and that's what I think we should do now. I think, I think we should basically just, leave them to their own devices, uh, let them do their own thing. Their complaints are only elevated by white leftists and Jewish elements and other kind of grievance politics elements in, uh, you know, cosmopolitan Australian society um, as a political weapon. They don't, they don't, they never formed like this super coherent, you know, force in Australian politics that demanded answers like it's not like the maoris in new zealand that were actually a competent fighting force they they earned a treaty with the british because they were such formidable uh, formidable warriors that it was you couldn't just defeat them and impose and or you could just build a country around them and ignore them uh you know you actually had to acknowledge them because you know they posed a threat they the aboriginals never posed a threat to us uh and never will so you know that that's kind of my stance on it. You got your uh, mute button on, by the way. I don't know if you realize. Yeah, you're hitting some good points there. I seen an article there last week, and I already fell out of the chair. It said that the most, uh, the town with the most pedophilia, it was somewhere like in the outback of Australia. And that um, nearly every child in the town had been sexually abused. Did, did you see, I don't know if it was a recent news story, but I literally I seen it a couple of days ago. And that was new to me. I never knew that that, you know, the child sexual abuse was so, such a huge problem within that community. Yeah, I mean, one of my theories as to why they're so low IQ, basically, is because, like, if that kind of child sexual abuse is going on, it's reasonable to assume that they've had a large amount of incest going on for many years. Uh, and they've been, they said they came down to Australia from modern day Sri Lanka and India, you know, 40,000 years ago, whatever it was. And so they're probably just like highly incestuous, many, many generations of incestuous breeding uh, versions of Dravidians from Southern India and Sri Lanka. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a total mess. Anyone who actually, people like talking about Aboriginals who never actually have to deal with them. Uh, you know, people from the cities where they're not really a fixture. Maybe you have a token half Aboriginal person who has gone to university and kind of acts like a white person. 
but the people who live out in these communities where they actually have a lot of aboriginals and there's just the violence the abuse the the crime um you know they actually have a realistic kind of a view on the subject and um but they never really get a chance to have their voice heard they get called racists if they ever kind of raise any kind of issues but um yeah it's a like me as a kind of upper middle class white australian from a major city i in my life barely ever meet have met any of uh, aboriginal people i barely have to deal with them um it's just not really part of my life and any kind of rich or not even rich but just kind of middle class white person from a major city in australia has the same experience and you know those are the kinds of people that they dupe into this kind of white guilt um it's it's probably i don't know maybe kind of roughly similar imagine like I, i imagine that maybe the issues that you guys have with uh gypsies or whatever would be kind of analogous but gypsies by comparison to the aboriginals are far more civilized uh, yeah there would be <clears throat> it'd be similar in the sense of you know getting the protected status and their own ethnicity and stuff like that um and you know there would be i suppose differences in iq and that and but not i have loads of gypsy friends and i've known them and grown up with them and you know there's some really good people w- within them and you know they're um they're well able for business and and you know wheeling and dealing and making money and stuff like that so it's it's similar but not the exact same as the aboriginal that's the aboriginal thing um i'm just looking at time there i'm going to see if patricia is on because patricia had some questions as well and she might jump in and, and go through a few of them with you yeah yeah thanks thanks gav appreciate that um yeah yeah joel um i'm just going to kind of take it back to kind of tailor it back a tiny bit to ireland per se um i i'm we as a group here now the last three years we kind of have uh, set up this channel here and we're just mulling out ideas the agenda here in ireland seems to be at least 10 if not 15 years ahead of where we are as nationalists so they've infiltrated every little community grouping. So you might have a local grouping that might be in the Girl Scouts. You might have a gardening group. You might have an old age dinner group all dotted throughout Ireland. And you have these, all of those groups are linked into a bigger organization, which gives them funds. And they're also linked into another group, which is centralized which is passing on all these wokeism terms, all of these terminologies, and those in hand have the ear of the government. And this is why I feel personally, we uh, as a grouping, while we are gaining traction out doing our, you know, our lawful, lawful assemblies, as words are important, how you use them, um, we still aren't gaining the traction that we should be. And I feel, I feel it's because of all of the um, intel that the government has intertwined over the last 15 years. And I was just wondering, would you, are you guys facing something similar as well? Um, we have a high NGO pop, um, population in this country. Um, while some of them while some of them do good in the community, most of them are here for nefarious reasons, as in putting out terms terminology, you know, using, showing to different groups how to set up Facebook accounts, how to word your Facebook account, social inclusion and all of that. And I was just wondering, what are you guys facing on the ground over there? Yeah, so the 
police state elements is is definitely playing a factor. I mean, the uh, it we get censored quite brutally. Like when I was describing earlier about how you know five plus years ago, how you know the old uh, United Patriots Front, the UPF uh, organization that Blair ran, um, how they were very successful after the Brendan Tarrant shooting in New Zealand. Uh, you know, that was kind of used as an excuse to where, you know, we have the documents like the prime minister of Australia gave direct, the, the prime minister's office gave direct requests to Facebook, YouTube, et cetera, uh, Twitter to, to take down the accounts of Australian nationalists, uh, which they tried to link to this guy uh, because I don't know, he was a supporter of the signal support of them or something in some loose way. Therefore, their national security threats and now ASIO, which is Australia's intelligence, main intelligence uh, agency, um, you know, their mantra is that, you know, white nationalism or is Australia's number one national security threat. And that half, they say that half of their resources are committed to <laughs> fighting white nationalism. Um, and a lot of my friends that have been in nationalist organizations, it's very frequent for them to get visits from counterterrorism. Uh, to get harassed by either counterterrorism or ASIO in various capacities. Um, and the intelligence agencies are directly involved in pushing stories in the media, which vilify uh, our people. In addition to that, you have, uh, particularly in Melbourne, private security firms that are directly linked with the Mossad uh, that are also directly involved in kind of... Uh, basically running ops on, on, on white nationalist organizations, whether it be surveillance uh, or otherwise, um, and that have a lot of influence over media narratives as well. So there is a very kind of coordinated effort in Australia to suppress white nationalism when they get represented, when we get represented in the media to only represent our people in what they think is going to be the worst light possible. Um, and, yeah, they're kind of talking points. You kind of describe the kind of wokeism language or whatever of all these kinds of you know globalist NGOs that are very powerful in Ireland. Um, you know, they're obviously, we have a similar thing. They're very plugged into the media here. Community organizations, not so much. I haven't perceived that, uh, that same type of infiltration. Um, but unlike Ireland or most European countries, Australia doesn't have it's a sad thing about Australia. We don't really have the same kind of degree of community participation Don't have all of these like strong organizations that are pillars of the community in the same way that you have them in European culture. And that makes it very difficult to organize people. We have a very atomized, particularly in the major cities, we have a very atomized culture, um, a very apolitical culture. Uh, you know, most people don't go to church anymore. You know, there's, maybe sporting clubs that the kids play at. But other than that, they just go to work, go to the pub, come home. That's it. There's not like this whole, uh, you know, social infrastructure for the majority of people in, in a very serious capacity. So, you know, that makes it quite difficult um, for any politics to get organized. Even mainstream politics here, it's very low participation rate. And um, yeah, it's it's a very amateur level uh, of of recruit that they get to kind of be to kind of in, in political media or political organizing, uh, you know, party political kind of representation and so on, uh, because 
we're a very apolitical society. Um, and, you know, a lot of the traditional links that fed into whether it be like the trade unions or the churches or other community organizations like the RSL used to be really big, which was an organization for returned servicemen, military servicemen, or, you know, other organizations that were prominent 50, 60 years ago that had massive influence over government policy that were more pro-nationalist that supported things like the white Australia policy and so on. They all disintegrated decades ago. And so, yeah, that, that kind of thing just isn't really around uh, today. Um, and so you have this kind of cosmopolitan culture driven by the media and by the universities, which it, it's the same cosmopolitan leftist culture as you have in every major Western city. And they're organized. They have an agenda which you know, bleeds through the media and therefore into politics. And there really isn't much of a counterforce. Um, so... But yeah, the the grassroots nationalist movement that was forming, you know, six years ago or whatever, that was gaining a lot of traction that Blair was, you know, leading, that was incredible. Like they would put out uh, stuff on, they were just grassroots guys without much media experience cutting videos on their phone and they were getting way more traction than all the major political parties and major, um, you know, political commentary outlets. Like they were like the number one, fastest growing you know in 2018 2017 2018 they were like the biggest thing in uh online political media basically uh in australia which is crazy to think about so the issue that australia has is just how to build a sophisticated organization for facilitating that popular sentiment and giving it a voice like if we go back to the mid mid to late 90s the rise of the one nation party which now has become uh, increasingly more cucked in its uh, policy orientation. In the 90s, when that emerged, it was a very poorly organized, um, a lot of you know basically grifters and, and, and like nefarious individuals involved. And so that collapsed and it was attacked like you had these Jewish Zionist organizations doxing all of their donors and media hit pieces galore and, you know, just, you know, it, they were jailing members of the party and so on uh, on trumped up charges. But they had an incredible wave where they came, blew up out of nowhere in the 90s and were, you know, in the Queensland election that came into existence only in late 1996. And in the 1998 Queensland election, they got 25% of the vote. They, they uh, were dominating national headlines. They were polling, you know, 15% nationally. And I was reading a book uh, just the other day of essays written by kind of political analysts about the rise of the One Nation Party in the late 90s from the late 90s. And their attitude was basically that they were like a force, this kind of third force in Australian politics outside of the conventional conservative versus left kind of dichotomy um, that was here to stay. And, you know, that was kind of taken down through institutional warfare the Australian political system has been very successful at destroying uh, nationalist movements, basically, is my point. Um, and it isn't because our political system is particularly sophisticated. It's because our nationalist movements have always been very unsophisticated. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that there isn't a lot of strong kind of community organization, like grassroots conventional, you know, uh, yeah, community organization like you have in European countries, which are just far more kind of culturally rich. The people have lived in those towns or cities 
for generation after generation after generation and they have all of this kind of legacy localism that is just organic uh when i was traveling through europe i noticed that and from talking to european friends we just don't have that in australia most australians don't have very deep ancestral uh, lineages to the specific town in which they live uh, they probably just moved there as uh, as an adult or something or maybe their parents live there but that's about it and um so that makes it difficult uh to to organize a grassroots movement when there isn't much of a grassroots that's very organized to begin with uh that, that's fantastic joel um yeah i i was also looking at um where do we need to go um we are very thin on the ground as most nationalists in all the european countries are um like there is a, a few parties that have sprung up over here in Ireland now the last year or so. Well, you had the you had the Freedom Party and the Nationalist Party, but you've also now a new party called Ireland First. Um, now Irish people, as a general, they kind of you know they wouldn't be per se like getting involved around parties you know they might sometimes they might if the agenda is really strong you know the message is really strong they might get behind it um but like how do you think like um these parties can engage people on the street so to just go back to basics and just see where people are where the people are at um socially and emotionally and engage them with them on that level and start from there and try and go about it like kind of like a fun easy instead of going with agenda driven to try and get these people on mass like i'm trying to find solutions to to you know increase our foot power on the ground how 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 would you look at something like that you know as a as a as a new party setting up you know like instead of just going with the message of the shit show that we're in but maybe just realize that the people are not there that maybe just engage with them at the level that they're at and and be seen to be you know Know, tidying up the towns, you know, being proactive and being a fun kind of easygoing solution that people might get behind and then slowly start bringing in the message. Uh, do you think that sort of thing would work? Or um, I know a lot of people are disillusioned with the political aspects. Uh, what would your opinion be on that? Well, it's very important when you're engaging in kind of radical political organizing to make it fun and enjoyable for the people that you're trying to organize because we're a long way away from power. They're not jumping on a bandwagon that's already rolling and established and is already a major political force. And so you do need to have something else that, you know, makes it worth showing up every week to whatever the case may be. You've got to make it, um, you know, you got to have that uh, fun community element. It's, it's so critical. Um, you know, guys in Australia that do the active club model, that's part of their theory, which is like, well, if we want to get young men together every week, there's really only uh, two choices in Australia, uh, which is either everyone goes to the pub and then it just becomes this kind of drinking club or we can work out together. We can train kickboxing or go to the gym and lift weights and we can make it a, that's the active club model or whatever. That's obviously only going to work for younger men, but um, you know, that's, that's one approach um, to keep the activists together, hanging out every week and 
you know, you can then use that as a foundation from which to go and do other things. Also, I'm a, a you know, I, I'm a Catholic. I got friends that I know from from church who we've engaged in certain kind of activism together because that's actually a piece of organic community. We're connected to each other because we go to mass together and then that branches off to enabling us to have those relationships that can be organized into working together on other political ventures or whatever. Um, so, you know, finding those kinds of pillars of community where they can still exist and, and trying to like build from that is very, I think important because that, you know, at the end of the day, humans are social animals. And if um, everything is just politics, 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 you know, that's going to alienate a lot of people for the reasons you probably mentioned. But also when it comes to trying to advance our message and get people actually motivated about the politics themselves, I think it's really important to focus on media because you said the people aren't quite where they need to be. They're not, they're not at the level that we're at in terms of their political consciousness and it's very difficult to therefore organize those kinds of people into a political force. You need um, to have a media, an alt media force that can challenge the mainstream media narratives and that can legitimize what you're doing. And so that's what I'm very passionate about trying to help facilitate is building that kind of uh, alternative media infrastructure and figuring out how to market it to the people Um because, you know, for me, when I kind of developed the views that I have, I developed them because I was, you know, searching outside of the mainstream on social media and so on for polit for political analysis and news and so on. And, uh, you know, that ultimately led me to communities of, uh, of people who had nationalist views. And, um, you know, that really is so important because, yeah, it's very hard to kind of reach, get people in real life to care. Otherwise, you have to provide a kind of media product they can consume. You know, if you're um, asking someone to show up to an event and do activism, that's quite difficult. But if you're just trying to provide someone with a podcast or provide someone with a website to get their daily news from or, or whatever, you're providing them with something that's far easier for them to access. And then, you know, then you've got access to their mind. You can start presenting the nationalist perspective on various news and events. And that over time brings people to our worldview. The only reason why everyone isn't a nationalist right now is because there isn't nationalist media. Like if you had the nationalist perspective presented in the mainstream media in Australian Ireland, I believe that the majority of Australians and Irishmen would be strong nationalists because our worldview just is so much more logical. The enemy's worldview is built upon suppression of our perspective and a very careful massaging of current events and how they're presented to, um, you know, always provide their kind of bias and their framing on it. So um, I think the key element to growth, if you want to have a successful political party, that political party needs to already have an established media propaganda machine that can support its rise. Uh, and if you don't have that, it's very difficult to get a new party off the ground because there's only so far you can get with kind of grassroots organizing. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to jump in on you there. Um, the def definitely, um, we have no voice. We have no voice, literally, in this country. Um, we the, all the state, the state broadcaster, and all the other um, print media. 
uh, radio, all of that is all is all government based. They're all churning out the thing. We've only um, maybe two, maybe two small small publications, Script Media and uh, the Irish Inquiry, that are that are uh, on our side and are churning out good stuff. Um, now I'm going to delve into Twitter there. Um, since Elon Musk, uh, the the so-called, and I, I'm using it in hyphen commas, white knight that has arrived on Facebook, he has kind of opened up the platform a little bit, and it has given it has given us on you know on the dissident right you know a chance uh, to you know to get some get some of our message out, um, you know and um, how do you, while, while some of us have a voice, you have the likes of Mark Collette, Pox Popoli, even Satirical Soldier. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, Mike Connell. He, he would be one of our main voices over here. And the content that he puts out is on point. And it, it's done in a, it can be done in a, you know, very kind of lighthearted way. And it really does engage people that wouldn't necessarily be be looking to find that message, you know, basically the normies. So I was just wondering, what what are your takes on Twitter? I know, I know it's not the savior. We all know who Elon is and this new new uh, CEO that he's hired. And I was just wondering, what's your take on Twitter? Yeah, well, I mean, I was banned from Twitter for two years, basically, and then brought back recently. So uh, personally, my experience has been very good. Uh, since I've come back, I've had really good engagement. I bought the blue check mark and everything, and I haven't cucked on any of my talking points. If anyone goes and looks at my Twitter and scrolls through my tweets, they're pretty, um, you know, forward. I'm not really compromising much at all uh, to, you know, try and stay on Twitter and watch what I'm saying or anything, and it's been fine. So that's a massive improvement. It wasn't like that even when I still had my Twitter account back in 2021 under the old regime, I had to be very careful and could never mention Jews. And like, if you say anything too edgy, you're always worried, or oh, maybe this is the tweet that, that gets me. Although a lot of the people that got banned back then, myself included, we were banned because they mapped like nationalist networks. And then they would just ban the whole network or a portion of whatever they mapped. Um, it seems to be different now. It seems like they mostly ban people because state authorities in whatever respective uh, country you live in um, identify a particular organization that they deem to be a quote-unquote national security threat or whatever. Obviously, it isn't actually a national security threat, but they always put it in those terms. And then all the accounts that are kind of formally linked to that organization get taken out. So when Mark Collette got banned, it wasn't just him. They banned all everyone who was in Patriotic Alternative. You had overt Patriotic Alternative accounts, they all got banned on the same day, I believe. So, and we've seen a similar thing with the Americans, with everyone in the National Justice Party, they all got kind of taken off at the same time and seemed to be kind of blanket banned. So that's the type of thing that seems to occur. Uh, unfortunately, Blair, he's, uh, Blair Cottrell, uh, my colleague, has tried appealing his suspension over and over again and couldn't get back on. And that's unfortunate, and it's probably for the same reason, because he you know, has been demarcated by the Australian government as a uh, associate of a national security threat or a national security threat in some capacity. Um, and so, you know, I don't necessarily blame Elon Musk for that. I think Twitter is just kind of complying with 
state regulators and you know it would be great if he took them on but um i do think he was when he first took over the platform i think uh he was basically willing and 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 trying to make the place uh freer than it was at the very least and he did but he also suffered this adl coordinated uh mass boycott uh of ad- like this mass advertiser boycott and some of the uh, documents that i saw coming out uh, that were reported in the media showed that twitter was just hemorrhaging money without those advertisers like their entire business model is built around advertising and um this uh woman that they just hired to to replace Musk's ceo they seem to bring her on board just after all these advertisers decide to come back on board with twitter and that's kind of convenient. So I am concerned that perhaps um, we're going to see more censorship than w- what we've had over the last few months uh, with this new uh, CEO. Maybe there's been some kind of you know under the table agreement to censor certain things uh, to get the advertisers uh, back on Twitter. I don't know. We'll see how it shapes up. But I'm not feeling too optimistic, unfortunately. But I. It's been good that, that Twitter has been much better than it was before, even if not perfect. I mean, the best was when uh, a friend of mine, Keith Woods, obviously Irishman, when he made a, a tweet, re, uh, you know, a month ago or so about the these terrible draconian hate speech laws that they're bringing in in Ireland, and obviously Elon himself uh, retweeted it and responded to it, and so did a whole bunch of high-profile figures, and the tweet went ballistic. It got like 13 million impressions or something and made international headlines and uh you know that was brilliant that's the kind of thing that that kind of thing wouldn't have been possible um if elon didn't take over twitter and that seemed very desperately needed in the irish political discourse because they were ramming this thing through with very minimal media coverage which is crazy Uh, and that really shone the spotlight on it and uh i don't know i haven't kept up to date with the situation hopefully the whatever the, I don't know what the term for it is. I don't know all the Irish terms, but your version of the Senate, hopefully they make some amendments and take some of the uh, sting out of that bill as a result of that media backlash. I don't know if that's likely or possible or what the status with that is, but um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that media storm definitely helped the situation. It not hindered it. And so we have to try and get the best out of Twitter that we possibly can and try and just maximize, um, yeah, just maximize the resource for what it is and spread our messaging and try and use Twitter to promote things off platform as well as best we can. But, you know, we've got to make hay while the sun shines. Who knows how long it'll last. Uh, but what I've also noticed is that YouTube censorship is not as bad as it used to be. And I think it might be because uh, Rumble is now competing with YouTube and it's been very successful. Uh, Rumble with American, the American right, they're all streaming on Rumble now, and it's getting really good views. Um, more kind of normie conservative types streaming on there too, not just like dissident types. And I think that's, as a result, YouTube as a competitor has, has kind of eased off the censorship. I mean, the fact that Blair and I are able to have our show going on YouTube is crazy. Um, I didn't expect it to last this long, but we haven't been censored, even though we don't censor ourselves and what we say on the show. So it just seems like the internet has just kind of become a little bit more hospitable to us and our ideas. And 2023, it's a perfect year for it because it seems like internationally, uh, you know, nationalist talking points are really just kind of coming back front and center into the conversation, uh, you know, pro-white talking points and so on in America. It seems like 
you know, black v white uh, race relations is front and center of the conversation. You know, the migrant crisis in in Britain and Ireland, um, the things I described down here, and so I think people should be people should be optimistic about our opportunity to advance our worldview and our perspectives and our takes in this kind of media environment. But also we need to kind of build beyond just having Twitter accounts. I think building more sophisticated alt media is, is really necessary um, to, you know, build things that are a little bit more anti-fragile to censorship and, and uh, you know, compete with the more conventional media organizations. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think uh, cautious optimism in general, um, slight pessimism with Twitter, but overall, uh, 2023 has been much better than it was uh, in the last few years for advancing nationalist messaging online. That's for sure. Yeah, it's ha- it's ha- it really it really has, Joel. Um, it's only that uh, we're facing uh, this new bill coming down the road, and it's in the Shannon now. So basically, this is this is um, a part of our our government where they're called senators, and they will review um, the the process. And if they deem that they're happy enough with it, they'll pass it on to the president of Ireland, and then it's up to him to review it and then ratify it, mean and sign it into law. And unfortunately, uh, the way things are going here. Um, we have one or two shining lights in in the channel at the moment that will do their level best to push back on it. But unfortunately, I can just see it being uh, pushed right through to our little uh, munchkin of a president. And uh, if we don't, if we don't get his ear or we don't get somewhat of a pushback on him, uh, he's going to sign it in, and we're we're. Uh, we're in a very dire situation, but um, while while there's while it's still not got in, we still need to get the message out, and we still need to speak our truths when it does when it does eventually come in. And myself and Gavin on here, we will still be speaking our truth, and uh, we're prepared for the consequences down the road if they do come, you know. But we will at the same point be boxing clever, but uh, we will be needing the support of everybody abroad to to be uh, bringing it up on all all social media platforms about how draconian this new law is and anything anything at all, you know, to give support to us here. You know, we're very thin on the ground. We're doing we're doing Trojan work over here. And um that's really that's really it, Joel. You've been an absolute pleasure. Would you would you be up for taking one or two questions from the from the listeners? Um Obviously, um, our admin team there, it'll, uh, it'll only be um, regular members that will get the opportunity. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so if anybody there from the group would like to throw up their hands and we'll free you up and you'll get the opportunity to speak to Joel. I'll jump at once, guys. <laughs> No, that's it, Patricia. If they don't want to jump in, that's fine. Oh, James, James, James Collins there. He's put up his hand. Uh, one moment, James. There you go. Go ahead, James. Do 
James, I've freed you up there. Oh, hi there, lads. Good afternoon. Hello. Just give me a bit of feedback. You can hear me? Yeah, we can hear yeah, you. Yeah, we can hear you. Hear us? That's the question. Yeah, I, I sure can. Yeah, yeah, fantastic stuff there. I mean, look at a question there directed at, um, yeah, thanks, Patricia, uh, Gavin, at Joel. I mean, look at with this whole idea of liberalism, as we know, it's really is a cancer. It's a whole acceptance at the moment here in Ireland, obviously. We have uh, like mass uncontrolled illegal human trafficking flooding into the country. So what do you think you can say to people that isn't, you know, messing about conjecture, like leveling at someone that's I to define really what's going on at the moment? Uh, how, how how would you put it to someone just to say, obviously, what's taking place is, you know, it's it's a total attack on our country. But we know that this is globally coordinated. So you were talking to your friends and neighbors. How what way are you putting it to people? Or have you an idea on that, Joe? Yeah, well, I think using the term anti-white uh, is a very effective term. Uh, and also I promote I've been promoting recently. I actually might make a video about this for my YouTube, uh, what I call one-dimensional politics. By one-dimensional, I just mean thinking in terms of the left-right uh, paradigm. People have all these kinds of criticisms of, you know, the, we don't capture political ideas through thinking only in terms of left versus right and so on. But the average person um, identifies as left or right generally quite often, and they kind of perceive the political process in those terms. So there must be something to it. And so the question is, well, what is, what is the left leftist agenda? Obviously, it's ascendant. Obviously, it's uh, dominant. Uh, and my view is that it's fundamentally anti-white because when you look at the left and its priorities, uh, if any other priority it has conflicts with uh, being anti-white, uh, being anti-white always wins. So... I can have some examples here that are quite simple. For example, the left is supposedly environmentalists and they're really concerned about global warming. And we know that when an immigrant comes from the third world into the first world, it increases, it triples their carbon footprint. So why does the left support mass immigration from the third world to the first world? Because they care more about being anti-white than they care about global warming. Um, apparently the left cares about feminism and gay rights. Uh, and we know that Muslims are not huge fans of feminisms or gay rights. So why are we bringing a bunch of Muslims in to Europe uh, to violate the women's and homosexual rights, apparently, of Europeans, the hard won by you know liberal activists or leftist activists over the years? Um, well, it's because they care more about being anti-white than about being feminist or being pro-gay. Um, you know, why they were very concerned, the left, about uh, covid and about how we need to have these lockdowns and everything and we've got to stop the virus. Uh, but George Floyd, he gets, uh, he dies. And then all of a sudden, well, actually fighting racism is more important than fighting the pandemic. Everyone get gathered together in the streets and let's, uh, let's do massive race riots. Um, who cares about COVID this week? So we see time and time and time again, that's what the left cares about the most is being anti-white. And that's why being racist or quote-unquote Nazi or whatever determination is the absolute worst possible thing you can be. There's nothing worse than being a racist, according to these people. Um, and that really kind of reveals their uh, priorities. And so the question is, well, then what would the right be? Well, the right would have to be the would have to be pro-white. It would have to be standing up against 
the destruction of white nations, white families, white culture, the white man's religion, uh, the white way of life, um, and white political power. Uh, that's what the left is attacking. That's what the right should be defending. And so we should be thinking about things in these terms. And so the question becomes, well, how come the right doesn't actually defend any of these things? And, the, and that is because basically what conservatism is supposed to be is trying to have some kind of compromise uh, with leftists. And what the left is demonstrating is that they're not interested in having compromise with us whatsoever. They're not interested in conceding any ground to us on their fundamental social agenda. And they want to make it illegal for us to even express a view uh, opposite to their agenda or in dissident in dissidence to their agenda. Um, they want to make it the idea that we would organize into a group is a national security threat. They, um, are, you know, they're not interested in any compromise. So compromise is not possible. And so the only real response to the left-wing anti-white agenda is to become uh, uncompromising in a pro-white agenda uh, to defend our people from this systematic attack um, and nothing else is adequate. That, that, that would be kind of my basic uh, determination. I see in I, the Irish media keep using this terminology far right all the time to describe nationalists in Ireland. And one retort that people give, which I think you know has value, is that, well, this isn't a crazy view. This is actually what the average person thinks, and it's what people have always thought since forever. And so now it's not to be radical or crazy to be a nationalist. But another response is, well, what do they mean by far right? Or what do they mean by right? Well, what they basically mean by far right is somebody who won't compromise and subordinate themselves to the left. Uh, being far right just means somebody who opposes the left in a direct sense, um, according to them. Uh, and what does that mean? You oppose being, what is the left? The left is anti-white. So you're just opposing the anti-white agenda. You're standing up for your own people. So that's that's really what the one-dimensional politics kind of elucidates. I think that's a really simple and streamlined way to describe things to people because if you start talking about communism and fascism and liberalism, you can lose a lot of people in the minutiae of these ideological debates and I'm definitely guilty of in indulging in them more than perhaps anyone. Uh, but, you know, these things can be quite alienating when if you just kind of break it down to this is what left is, leftism is, it's anti-white, this is why it's anti-white, and we need to be a force that, well, there's no compromise possible with them, we need to be a force that opposes them. It's the only option left for us politically. I think this is basically the um, most correct uh, and simple, elegant, streamlined framing of uh, politics to give to you know your average Joe Normie. Good stuff, good answer there. And um, we've got someone else there to pop in. Their hand was up, or has it gone down? You mind if I jump in, Gar, for a moment? Oh, jump in, yeah, sure. Thanks. Hi, Joel. Uh, fantastic to hear you speak there. Uh, it was really, really uh, your wealth of knowledge. Um, so a nephew of mine has moved back uh, recently to Australia. His wife is a psychiatrist, his girlfriend, psychiatric nurse. But Aaron himself has to return to college uh, to apply for a working visa. And that's, I completely understand that. And I think it's a fantastic approach to protecting your borders, if you like. But in your opinion, would that apply to all countries coming into Australia? Uh, what do you mean uh, exactly? So, so he had a very successful career here, but it wasn't recognised in Australia. But for him to get his visa 
she got a job directly because she's a psychiatric nurse, but his qualification wasn't recognized, so he had to return to college to get in. Boss, yeah, you're saying, do I on? support that kind of policy? So what are you trying to ask? No, well, I think I, if someone's I, coming from Ireland, Ireland would probably have pretty similar standards to Australia. So, I mean, if you're coming from Britain or New Zealand or, so, or Canada or something, usually it, all the qualifications are recognized. I'm surprised we don't do the same thing with the Irish. But what I would not want is for us to recognize the, the qualifications of Indians or whatever, which is what the government has just agreed to do recently because we're in this kind of quad alliance with India, Japan, and the United States, kind of anti-Chinese block. And so now we're chumming up with the Indians and the Indian uh, government just wants to use it as an, as an excuse to fill our country with as many Indians as possible. And so we signed this kind of mutual uh, agreement recently of recognizing their qualifications, which I think is ridiculous. That is that they don't have standards of, of a proper country when it comes to education and things like that. Um, so, like, yeah, I would when it comes to another Western country, I wouldn't. I don't really have a problem with it. Maybe there's a specific industry where it's not appropriate. I'm not an expert on everything, but uh, if that's what you're asking, but yeah, that's what I was getting at, really. Um, so, if you're coming from a third world country. Um, would those strict rules apply? That's what I was really getting at. And you answered that. Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, ultimately, I, I wouldn't want anyone coming from a third world country, regardless of how qualified and excellent they are. I just don't want any, you know, non white people in Australia. So, um, but yeah. No, thank you. You've, you've answered that for me. I uh, appreciate you. And yeah, fantastic to listen to you. Thanks, Pior, and thanks, Gav. I have to pop out here now. Yeah, thanks, man. That's great. That's great. Joel, you have been an absolute star and, and legend. And thank you so much for coming on to our podcast tonight. Or to, sorry, not tonight, today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we've got some very good nuggets there uh, to to bring back to our own uh, people and, uh, you know, um, get to work, you know. And um, thank you for being so generous with your time. And uh Keep keep looking in on us and, uh, you know, drop in on our chats anytime. You know, you're more than welcome. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate uh, you guys having me on. Thanks, Joel. Brilliant stuff. And um, hopefully you might come on again in the future sometime. You might bring Keith with you the next time. We're, we're trying to get Keith on as well at some point. You might give him a shout for us. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention it to him. He's a hard man to book onto these kinds of things. He doesn't do doesn't do a lot of these type of things. But uh, but yeah, I'll mention it for sure. I mean, he should. He's Irish, so he's got to he's got to do some of his own uh, native podcasts. Yeah, and Thanks, uh, and, uh, and give a give a shout out to Blair as well. He's been uh, an absolute trooper, and uh, we're saying hi to him. Yeah, well, uh, probably Blair and Keith, like in in all all the movement, they're probably like my two main uh, my two main uh, dance partners for collaborations and two really good friends. So, so yeah, I'll, Blair actually did send me a message because I think you got on to him. You're looking for me earlier, so um, yeah, he's he's obviously a, a legend in in Australian nationalism, and uh, you know he's a very forceful speaker. He's a very engaging speaker whenever he gets going on a on a rant. You know, it just seems to you know, draw people to him. So it's good to have someone so enigmatic on our side. 
Absolutely, absolutely. You guys are fantastic, and I, I have I have gotten a lot of a lot of uh, info and 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 useful uh, tools uh, from from listening to you guys because you guys have you know really you know have inspired me especially but stuff I'm doing um not going to say on here obviously but um you guys really are an inspiration and you're the go-to people that I do go to look um you know to see how you're doing things what you're you know how things are going out there for you. And I also want to give a shout out to Thomas Sewell as well. Uh, he's another good guy out there that I follow as well. Yeah, it's funny. Tom's got this very like big, bad, badass kind of persona. You know what I mean? This kind of intimidating uh, aura. But, um, you know, I, w- I went over to his place the other weekend when I was down his way and you know he made us this like gourmet breakfast that he was cooking up in the kitchen. And he's got, the- he's a family man. He's got this beautiful young daughter that uh, was only born, I think three months ago or so. He's got these big blue eyes and he's just like a kind of, he's just a very normal down-to-earth, hospitable uh, kind of family man, which is, uh, you know, the media try and portray him in Australia as this, like, crazy terrorist or something, but he's just, like, you know, just a normal guy, very genuine. Um, so it's quite a funny contrast. Uh, it is, yeah. Yeah, but look at look at Joel. Thanks again. You've been so so kind and so generous, and uh, we, really, we really do appreciate the conversation today. A lot of food for thought, and and look at uh, you know we're we're looking over at w- what you guys are doing, and we're all in this together, and uh, we'll all back one another up when when the crunch comes. And uh, thanks a million for coming on. Of course, thanks everybody.